Welcome to episode 90 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf, the Associate Editor at Country and Townhouse Magazine. And I'm Ed Vasey. I'm the Culture Editor of Country and Townhouse Magazine. And do you realise that if you add in our 10 episodes of Lockdown Culture, which we started during lockdown, this means <laughs> that this, Charlotte, is our 100th podcast together. That means we spent at least 100 hours together. Not to mention, <laughs> if you add in all the faffing around, about 200 hours together. It's quite incredible, though, that we've reached 100 podcasts. We may even have reached 100 listeners. <laughs> we, we might have done. Well, we have actually certainly kept going, thanks to our listeners. And also because we are very lucky to have so much culture going on in Britain. So we certainly never run out of anything to talk about. Everything else is looking pretty gloomy at the moment, but culture is absolutely thriving. So actually, it's a total joy to be able to talk about something positive every week. Yes, we thought it'd be fun to go back to how we started, when we really just used to chat away about what was on the telly and also obviously what was going on online because you couldn't go and see anything. So we're going to chat a bit later about what we're actually watching on the telly. Uh, but now, as it's mid-October, we're in that time of year when art has been flooding into London. Yes, it certainly has, with Friesen Regents Park, the other art fair at Truman Brewery, start Art at Saatchi, the African Temporary Art Fair at Somerset House, Pad London, the Affordable Art Fair in Battersea. But now, as most of the fairs close today, we're turning to Tate Modern for one of the most exciting exhibitions of the year. Suzanne, as Charlotte knows, is one of my all-time favourite artists. And last week, long-awaited EY-sponsored exhibition of his work opened at Tate Modern. It's got 22 works that have never even been seen in the UK before. Here to tell us all about it are Natalia Sidlina, who's worked at Tate Modern as Curator of International Arts since 2016 and Assistant Curator Michael Raymond. Good morning to you both. Morning. Good morning. Well, good morning. And it's wonderful to have you both on the podcast, as I hugely enjoyed seeing a bit of your tour of this glorious exhibition when it opened last week. Like Ed, I'm a huge fan of Cezanne, but I'd never really had a close look at his early, quite disturbed dark works in Paris, nor had I realised just how many of his works were owned by great artists from Monet to Picasso. So can I kick off by asking you both why you think He's such an important artist and so revered by so many other great artists. Well, Cezanne, one of those enigmatic figures that captured imagination of both artists and the public during his lifetime and then for each consecutive generation. And he continues to fascinate both the public and the creative artists. He's one of those key connections between the tradition of the 19th century and innovation and experimentation of the early 20th century modernism. But I think the most exciting thing about Cezanne is that he is still an enigma. He's a still a question mark. Yeah, I was just going to add, um, I think too, that Cezanne is one of the first artists who really did away with trying to accurately represent nature. What was really important for Cezanne was, the, as he described it, the realisation of his sensations of what he was looking at. So it was his own personal take on, on the world and of nature. And I think that's something that really deeply resonated with artists at the time and for subsequent generations of artists ever since. I think the way you've hung it is absolutely superb, especially I particularly loved the way all the Mont Saint-Victoire paintings were hung together. I mean, that just t tell our listeners 
a bit about that room because it's absolutely stunning. It's the land he knew as a child. It's the slopes he walked thousands of times when he was a teenager, schoolboy, and then the accomplished artist. It's a mountain he observed over days and weeks and years and decades and painted from all the points of view. And one of the key things he said was that in order to understand the mountain, in order to understand the landscape, he needs to learn more about geology and geography. And in order to do that, he engaged uh, his very close childhood friend, Fortuné Marion, who was a professor of natural sciences at the University Marseille and Axe. And they used to walk the slopes of Mont Saint-Victoire together. And in one of the sketchbooks, there are actually notes from Professor Marion telling him about the geological formations. And in the paintings like the view of the Saint-Victoire from the Bibemus quarries, we see how he looks very deeply into the geological history of the land. He portrays the abundant quarries known by the locals since the ancient times. So in this painting, we see beautiful landscape altered by the human hand because the quarries were minded for centuries. And then in the background, the blue majestic outline of Saint-Victoire, which captured his imagination and which he elevated to the level of universal in his paintings. For those who've never been to, to Aix-en-Provence, Mont Saint-Victoire, it really hangs over the town, it kind of dominates the, the skyline. And I think for Cézanne, it, it would have been a, probably a, a signifier of, of home. It's just something that really fascinated Cézanne, and he depicts it um, well over 80 times. And, and we, in the exhibition, sought to, to bring together a, a series of uh, his works depicting the mountain that, that shows the evolution of uh, his style over, um, over the decades of his career. The other room that's so fantastic is, of course, the still life room. What's interesting is that the date of the execution of those still lives is 1893, 1894. And 1893 is the most enigmatic and mysterious year in Cezanne's life because there isn't a single documentary evidence of what was happening with him personally during this time. There are no letters, uh, there are no messages, there are no recollections by the friends. We don't know what he did. He was very busy painting apples and oranges on that beautiful background. That's a a general (laughs) assumption that he gave up everything and created and was working on this group of still lives in particular. And people were literally gasping. It, they were so beautiful. His apples, obviously, are so iconic and people were just going, wow. I mean, it really looked fabulous. But talking about mystery, tell us a bit about his son, Paul. You can you get a sense in the exhibition that Suzanne was, that, yeah, he had a real fondness for his son. There's these really beautiful, tender portraits that, that he executes of, of his son, um, particularly at, at a younger age. There's, a, there's lots of apocryphal tales of how long it takes Suzanne to to paint these portraits and I, I kind of joke that perhaps one of the the greatest mystery of Suzanne is how did he get his son to sit still for so long to <laughs> to paint these portraits but the, but they're really beautiful they're really tender and uh, and in another room in the in the exhibition we actually have one of Suzanne's sketchbooks and here we can see Suzanne and his son drawing side by side on on, on each page and um, which is another really kind of uh, touching uh, moment. Uh, there's a letter 
and that's Suzanne writes at, at one stage in the 1870s, in which he he describes uh, it being a bit of a relief when his partner at that moment, uh, Hortense, arrives in Lestat because he'd been looking after Paul on his own <laughs> for for some weeks. So so uh, you know I think they must have had a, a, a close relationship in the last few years of his life. He really entrusted his son to kind of take over his business affairs and look after his, his dealings. But why didn't he tell his father that he had a son for so long? What was all that about? It's uh, another uh, another mystery. The, the fact is that Cezanne himself was a legitimate child. His father was an owner of a hat business, which produced and sell hats in Arsene-Provence. It's only later he became a famous banker of the town. But when Cezanne was born, his mother and his father were not married. And I think they sort of anxiety remained with him and uncertainty of his father's feelings for him uh, remained with Cezanne for the rest of his life. We have beautiful, enormous, huge portraits Cezanne produced in his early years of his father. They're very difficult to hang because they're so disproportionately larger than any other studio output Cezanne had at the time. Interesting. He constantly was trying to win his father over constantly asking through his work am I doing the right thing am I on the right track and his father although he had a dream of his son either following the business or become or becoming a lawyer he sent him to the law school supported Cezanne through a monthly allowance so Cezanne throughout his adult life was supported by his father and therefore he didn't really need to sell many of his works to make a living. And uh, the assumption is that Cezanne was really anxious that if his father discovers that he has a partner and an illegitimate child, this allowance will be withdrawn. And therefore he went to such a length to hide uh, Hortense Fiquet and little Paul from his entire family. But we know that the mother was in and knew about it and uh, were were in the secret communication. There's even sort of a a dramatic, almost kind of detective plot where his father opened a letter which was addressed to his son, to Paul Cezanne, where his friend mentions the couple and his father calls Cezanne into the family house to give an account of what was what was happening and Cezanne had to lie for his ears in order to get out but father always suspected something was a, a, a foot. They finally got married in 1886 and that was unfortunately the year uh, Cezanne's father passed away. I mean it's interesting because he's got such a reputation for being a bit of a loner Cezanne hasn't he and yet what this exhibition shows is how many friends he had. People think they know a lot about Cezanne and that his life is incredibly well documented. And we all heard about, you know, him taking 500 sessions in order to paint a portrait or him having a grumpy and unsympathetic wife or him being afraid to be touched. All these stories uh, sort of appeared in art history from the accounts of people who either uh, haven't met Cezanne or met Cezanne and written about him 10, 15, 20 years after the event occurred. So this kind of him being a hermit who, you know, came to Paris, then didn't make it in Paris and then uh, went to Provence and uh, sort of locked himself down in his studio and was just painting um, away from 
the crowds and admirers. Actually, he was constantly visited by people. So again, here we are dealing with myth making, which became uh, one of the key artistic tools of image making of the modernist era. And as we know from those letters in the last years of his life that he he's going for for dinner at his friend's house. He's going into X for to to hang out in the in the cafes and, and the restaurants. He, yeah, this sort of characterization of him as a kind of lonely uh, hermit of of X isn't quite accurate. What about his friendship with with Gauguin? Because Gauguin had an awful lot of his paintings, didn't he? Well, he did, and Gauguin fought an awful lot of uh, Cezanne. There's one work in the exhibition in particular, Still Life with Fruit Dish, which Gauguin described as being the apple of his eye and said, you know, he he wouldn't sell it or he wouldn't part with it uh, unless he was down to the last shirt on his back, which never quite turned out to be true because he had to sell it to pay for medical care. But yeah, i afraid to say that that kind of respect wasn't quite reciprocated <laughs> before it out. Um, Cezanne didn't think much of Gauguin at all. He thought he was... Um, kind of uh, copying his style and and really didn't think uh, much of him at all. For Gauguin, as well as for many other artists like uh, Monet and Picasso and Matisse, Cezanne was a, a, a very coveted creative for the purpose of collecting. And I guess in terms of Cezanne's place in art history, I mean, one kind of cliche is that he's the father of Impressionism. Not quite the... Uh, the father of Impressionism, which maybe is a title better attributed to his his friend and, and kind of mentor Camille Pissarro. But instead, you know, Monet called him the greatest of us all. Picasso, I think, referred to him as, as the father of us all. Um, but that was more of the kind of the subsequent generation of artists after after Cezanne's death, artists like yeah, Picasso and, and Matisse. Amongst the um, Impressionist group, Cezanne was kind of more of a of a fringe member if you like he participates in the first and in the third impressionist exhibitions there are eight of those in, in total how about cubism so you get a look in there Cezanne, in fact, took the challenge of taking art in a new direction. And he is believed to be the connection, this the sort of hinge point between the 19th century and the 20th century and between Impressionism and Cubism, which was developed by the next generation. We know that uh, Picasso studied his bather compositions very closely and there is a belief that the, the first paintings assumed to to be the first creation of in cubist style. Demoiselle d'Avignon was based on the Cezanne bather compositions, uh, but Cezanne himself was talking about uh, seeing the world in terms of the cube circle and the prism in a letter to Emile Bernard, who was at the time a young, aspiring artist, looking up to Cezanne for advice and guidance. So that phrase, that famous phrase, which is quite in one art history book after another wasn't Cezanne talking about himself, but his guidance, his advice to a younger generation of artists. All we know about him is through the accounts, through the stories of others, and through the quotes like the one Michael just gave us on his importance for the next generation of artists. And of course, in terms of breaking through into the UK, it was... Courtauld, who brought, who went over to Paris and bought lots of Cezanne's and started the sort of love affair that the British have with Cezanne. So I think John Maynard Keynes may have bought a landscape that he 
took back to Charleston. That's right. Yes. I, I suppose the other key figures um, would be Roger Fry, the member of the Bloomsbury Group and very influential British art critic. Um, he was instrumental in organising uh, a few exhibitions in the early 20th century that sort of, he introduced the phrase post-impressionism and um, displayed these works in, in London and sort of connected him with that would be the, the Davis sisters who lived in Wales. And they had a, a work by Suzanne, the Francoise Ola Dam, which is in the exhibition that was actually on, that was on display at Roger Fry's exhibition in, in 1921 at the Grafton Galleries. And the Davis sisters offered to, to lend it to Tate Gallery over at where Tate Britain is now today. And, um, that, that loan was turned down for lack of space. Now, um, shall we say, some trustees lent on uh, on on the director at the time, and uh, several letters were sent in to, to leading editors of the day. Uh, a few editorials were penned in, in the Burlington Arts Magazine. Uh, it caused a bit of of a, of a furore uh, that this had, this loan had been declined. And yeah, um, we should say that the director of Tate at the time changed his mind <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> And um, and then Tate became the first uh, British National Museum to to display Cezanne uh, in 1922, and the first to purchase the Cezanne. I think it was 1925, following a fund that was set up by Samuel Courtauld. So there's a clue there in this Cezanne exhibition opening in 2022, a hundred years. Absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so it actually was the uh, after the Davis sisters' loan was a, a decline. Long loan was declined by Tate Gallery. Roger Fry was instrumental in mounting an independent exhibition, which included those works by Cezanne, and that exhibition was visited with Samuel Courtauld in uh, in in 1922, and then he decided to acquire and mass the works which uh, are formed now part of the Courtauld Gallery collection as well as the National Gallery collection. And then he set up the fund specifically for uh, Tate Gallery, which at the time was uh, one of the departments of the National Gallery, encouraging the acquisition and display of the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist. And this is why we have such a wonderful national collection of works by Cezanne in this country. Well, I think the way you've hung this exhibition is what's so great about it is the paintings just blaze out of the walls and speak for themselves. And I think that last room where you put all the bathers... You're so poetic. <laughs> well, no, but I felt quite moved poetically by this exhibition. I mean, it is fabulous. And the, that last room with the bathers, you really can see how forward thinking he was. You can really see where Picasso got it from. You've really encouraged me to go now. It's fantastic. It really is. It's just, you know, I mean, many congratulations. It's a wonderful exhibition. I'm so glad you mentioned The Last Room. We we wanted to make connection between his late years and uh, the incredible uh, surge of creativity he had in his early 20s when he just came to Paris in the 1860s and 1870s. And just highlight that unlike so many other artists, he had the same level of uh, experimentation and uh, a, a, a daring and creative breakthrough in, in the last few 
two years of his life as he had when he was, you know, just fresh off the train, debarking from the Mediterranean South in the cold grey Paris in the 1860s. So those parallel between a young Cezanne and a very mature work by Cezanne, we're really keen for our audiences to grasp uh, and, and hope that the hang will encourage them to think in those terms about Cezanne's career. Yeah, well, it's, it's wonderful. So thank you both so much for coming on and telling us about it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's absolute pleasure and delight. Thank you. So that was a great and very fitting end to our 100th episode about one of my genuinely favourite artists. I know we have come a very long way on this podcast, given we began in lockdown without any guests at all, <laughs> just chatting about what there was to do online and what was on TV. Back in March 2020, it seemed Keely Hawes was in absolutely everything. And strangely, she's just starred in, well, not just starred, but it's now, you can see it on BBC iPlayer, the th three-part thriller Crossfire. Have you seen it, Ed? I haven't seen it, Charlotte, which is remiss of me, because as you know, Keely Hawes and I are very close. She's a very, very good friend of mine. Apparently, Hugh Bonneville told you that she never stops talking about me. I have actually met Keely Hawes once and I was flabbergasted when this star of stage and screen said she'd seen me on a morning chat show called The Right Stuff. And her <laughs> and her husband, Matthew McFadden, then proceeded to royally take the piss out of me. But I do think she's an absolutely brilliant actress. She was, of course, outstanding in the first series of Line of Duty. And then, of course, playing, I think, the Home Secretary in bodyguard i think that's been around long enough for for everyone to know that i think she was blown up at the end oh yes um and she was also killed in line of duty i haven't seen crossfire so i have no idea whether she survives it's set i think in a hotel which is taken over by terrorists that uh, so it's a news story one reads every few years which is absolutely terrifying but it has had absolutely rave reviews you see i've seen it it's absolutely gripping i i mean i just started watching it thinking oh keely horse and I was on the edge of my seat. It is completely terrifying. And it's the most bizarre, one of those really weird Spanish resorts in the middle of nowhere. And two hacked off ex-hotel workers come and start killing everybody, including a large chunk of Keeley Hall's family and friends. It's completely electrifying television. <laughs> uh, don't do it if you've got a nervous constitution. The other bit of telly I'm quite interested in is the, is the kind of telly that John Morton, who was on this podcast talking about the English version of Call My Agent, 10%. That thing of English people not really being able to communicate. And I don't know if you've seen any of Marriage. Again, that's a BBC thing with Sean Bean and Nicola Walker. I have seen the first few episodes. I must confess I haven't finished it yet, which is a bit embarrassing. But it does, I have to say, look absolutely brilliant. Sean Bean, I think, is an exceptional actor. I saw him in the drama where he's a teacher who I think ends up going to prison. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. That was brilliant, wasn't it? He's a teacher for, from drunk, drunk driving. Yes. And he is absolutely superb. Time. So that was called that Time, wasn't it? Brilliant. That one. Was it called Time? Time? You're so knowledgeable. <laughs> I just, I think he's... absolutely brilliant. And he's so good in this, being that repressed... Thing. I think Sean Bean is such a brilliant actor. I, I, he's so good in marriage because it's it nothing really happens, but he's so repressed, isn't he? It's just that that whole thing John Morton talks about the English people just being totally unable to communicate. It's very interesting to watch it in tandem with the manic 
Crossfire. What else are we watching? What is that new one that's just launched on Disney that's set in a restaurant? The Bear, a fast and furious kitchen nightmare that's just launched on Disney. And I read a review the other day which said that one of the episodes, I don't know which one, so we'll have to watch the lot, is the most perfect piece of 20 minutes television ever. But apparently it's just a kind of crazy. Because there is that one, there's that film. Oh, it's brilliant. Called, yeah. What's that one called? I can't remember what it's called, but it's all in one shot, isn't it? That's and right. The... It's all in one shot with that amazing actor. Yeah, uh, Stephen's. Uh, if we're being hopeless, <laughs> yeah. we can't remember. <laughs> no good to our listeners whatsoever. <laughs> anyway, that... that's that's the one I've got on my watch list that I really want to see. Is the bear? Oh, well, that's a top tip, and that's Disney. And okay, the bear. The trouble is that I'm watching Better Call Saul, which I never got round to, which is also described as the greatest TV series ever made, and it is compelling. And it is you know, the thing about these things when you come to them after they've all been launched. You know, it is like taking down three volumes of Proust, you can just luxuriously do sort of one or two hours a night. Breaking Bad, they then, instead of doing a sequel to Breaking Bad, they did a prequel called Better Call Saul, which focuses oh. on the, the life and career of Saul, Better Call Saul, the lawyer in Breaking Bad. And it's a whole eight series, I think, or six series of his life before he hooked up with the cartel and became a central character in Breaking Bad. And I'd always resisted it, thinking nothing could be better than Breaking Bad. And this Saul character, although he's important in Breaking Bad, didn't seem to me that compelling a character that you'd want to watch eight series about him. But I was wrong. I was wrong. It's brilliantly done. And it is absolutely just mesmeric. The other one I haven't seen, just to keep going on the stuff I've seen, I did see um, The Power of the Ring. I saw the first two episodes of those. I got invited to the Amazon premiere of that, which I have to say didn't strike me as particularly. It's not really my kind of thing. I've never really taken to The Lord of the Rings, and I've never quite got my head around why people keep remaking it. But anyway, Power of the Rings, if that's your thing, it does its job. But I did take very much to Game of Thrones, and I haven't watched House of Dragons. And my son told me he's going to wait till all the episodes downloaded to watch them, and then secretly behind my back has started watching them. So that's very annoying. But House of Dragons is another one that I can bookmark. Next week, we're going to be talking about Leighton House, the Holland Park studio and home of the eminent 19th century artist Frederick Lord Leighton. Designed by George Aitchison, Leighton House has always been one of London's most fascinating landmarks, celebrated for its opulent interiors and Arab hall with its exquisite mosaic floors and tiles throughout that Leighton brought back from its travels to Turkey, Egypt and Syria. Leighton House has been shut and tantalisingly under wraps and scaffolding for months and months but it opened yesterday after a magnificent £8 million redevelopment. Also reopening to the public is Sanborn House just around the corner, family home of punch cartoonist and illustrator Edward Lindley Sanborn. We'll be talking to the curator at Leighton House, Daniel Robbins, and to the Iranian artist Shahzad Gafari, whose artwork there is the house's first contemporary commission. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you if there's something you'd like to hear us profiling. Please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Take care. Bye.